Hi everybody. It's so good to be able to be with you in this way today and for us to be able to gather around God's Word together uh, in this way. We're going to take a brief break from First Peter. There are a couple of uh, challenging chapters coming ahead. I just want to spend a little bit more time researching them before I present them to you. And so today we're going to do something slightly different. This past week I was reading in Isaiah chapter 26, where Isaiah prays, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. And a little later in that same prayer, Isaiah says, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. And that made me think in turn of that little phrase in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, Hallowed be your name. Actually, that little phrase forms part of three requests that we make to God about God in the Lord's Prayer. And I'd like us to look at those today. Let me remind you of Jesus' prayer as it's found in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 9 through 13. Jesus said, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. If you look carefully at the Lord's Prayer, you will see that it actually consists of two equal parts with three requests in each part, three that relate to God at the beginning of the prayer, and then three relating to ourselves. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation. But this morning we're going to focus on the three requests relating to God, which are found in verses 9 and 10. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So often when we sit down to pray, we dive straight into telling God what we want. A little bit like the man who prayed, God bless me, God bless my wife's husband, my father's son, my brother's brother, not forgetting myself. But the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer reorientate us. They move us away from ourselves and back to God. And when that happens, it dramatically changes the rest of our prayer. It's so important that we begin with God in prayer. One writer puts it this way. He says, Prayer that doesn't start with God is always in danger of concentrating on ourselves. And very soon it stops being prayer altogether and collapses into the random thoughts, fears and longings of our own minds. Prayer that doesn't start with God very soon stops being prayer altogether and collapses into the random thoughts, fears, and longings 
of our own minds. So let's look at those three phrases one at a time. Firstly, Jesus tells us that we are to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? It's the phrase in the Lord's Prayer that children most often get wrong because they're not familiar with the words. So I heard about one five-year-old who prayed, Our Father, who shouts from heaven, Hello, what is your name? What does this phrase mean? Hallowed be your name. Well, the name of God doesn't simply mean the three letters, G-O-D. Rather, the name of God represents the person behind the name, God's nature and character. That's true of any name, in fact. If I were to say someone's name out loud, you immediately would have some kind of reaction, even if it's only on a subconscious level. When you hear their name, you have a mental picture of that person. Some of their characteristics may come to mind. You may have an emotional response. There may even be some words that come to mind that describe that person. The name of God means God himself. And what we're praying here is that God's name would be hallowed, in other words, treated as holy. As we've seen in our studies through First Peter, the word holy means set apart, different. Now, God's name is already holy because he has a name that is above every other name. In the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, we read how the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God there are these living creatures, seraphim, around God. And the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. God's name, God himself, is already holy. And what we're asking here is that God would be treated as holy. And not just by the world in general, but by me. Lord, may you be holy in my life. May my relationship with you be different from any other relationship that I have. May you be my Lord, my boss. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. That's what I'm doing when I pray, Hallowed be your name. I'm setting apart Christ as Lord. And this isn't simply a once-off prayer, that I've said it once and that settles it. No, this is a prayer that we need to pray every day. Verse 11 outlines one of the requests that we make for ourselves. Give us today our daily bread. Jesus envisaged us praying these words daily. And I need to pray this part of the prayer every day too. It's not just bread that I need every day. Each day I need to remind myself to keep God's name holy. Lord, today may I treat your name, may I treat you yourself as holy, as different from any other relationship in my life. You see, the problem is that we have a name too, don't we? As Pastor John Stott once said, it's a characteristic of our fallen human nature that we are vitally concerned with our own little name. 
We're vitally concerned with our own little name. We like to see our name. I mean, you can test this for yourself. When you go back to your old high school and you walk down the corridor that's got all the year group photographs and you stop beside the photo of your matric year, who do you look for first in the photo? Or there's the group photo in the in-house magazine at work or the group photo that a friend posts on Facebook. Who do you look for first? We like to see our name, whether it's on a nice brass plaque at the office or whether it's in the newspaper or in the school magazine. We want our name to look good. We like to make a name for ourselves. We like to get a name for this or that or the other. And also, we become very concerned and agitated when our name is tarnished, when people gossip about us and try to damage our name. We're concerned and preoccupied with our name. But as a Christian, my primary concern should not be with my name, but rather with God's name. Lord, may your name be treated as holy in my life, and may your name be glorified through my life. Secondly, in this prayer, not only should I be concerned with God's name, but I should also be concerned with God's rule. Your kingdom come. Lord, may you reign. Now again, just as God's name is already holy, so God already reigns. These words don't refer to God's ultimate sovereignty, whereby he rules the universe. We're not praying, Lord, please don't drop anything. God already reigns. What we're praying is that God's rule will extend in human hearts. We're praying that the kingdom of God that began with the coming of Jesus will continue to expand until one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the moment, we live in between times. We live in between God's kingdom begun and God's kingdom come. We live in between the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. We live in between the already and the not yet. God's kingdom is begun, but it isn't finished. Last month, on the 6th of June, uh, there were commemoration events held for the 76th anniversary of the Allied landings at Normandy. In 1944, the world was in the middle of World War II, and most of Europe was under the control of Nazi Germany. But on the 6th of June, 1944, the British and the American troops began their counter-offensive, Operation Overlord. They left from ports all over England, and hundreds of thousands of troops all converged on one point, the beaches of Normandy in France. If you've watched the movie Saving Private Ryan, you'll have some idea of what took place on those beaches at Normandy. Thousands of Allied troops died that day. But finally, at the end of the day, the Allies held those beachheads, and from those beachheads, the armies of Britain and America could move into Europe. The 6th of June, 1944, D-Day, was not the end of World War II. 
World War II would only end on the 7th of May, 1945, ten long months later. It would be known as VE Day, Victory in Europe. What D-Day accomplished, though, was the certainty that eventually VE Day would come, the war would end. And in a similar way today, as Christians, we live between D-Day and VE Day. Jesus' life and his ministry and supremely his death and resurrection and ascension have inaugurated the kingdom. The kingdom is here and we are asking that God's kingdom will be extended. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God and he describes it in this way. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground, yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. The kingdom of God is growing, slowly, sometimes unseen, but it is growing. And so we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come. But, as one writer puts it, this may be the most dangerous, exciting, life-altering prayer a human being can ever pray. Because in praying, Lord, may your kingdom come, we're really praying, Lord, in this day, help me to be a part of your kingdom coming. May your kingdom come in my life. May your rule extend in my life. You see, the problem is that we all have a kingdom, don't we? Just like we have a name, so we also have a kingdom. Your kingdom is that little sphere in which what you say goes. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. That's why you've got a body, because basically what's inside my body is my kingdom. Anything outside my body, well, that's up for grabs. But I can test to see how far my kingdom extends. That's why a two-year-old's favourite word is no. They're trying to work out the extent of their kingdom. If you have two children in the back of the car, what's one of the things that they try and do? They try and work out where their kingdom is. They draw a line. This is my kingdom and that's your kingdom and you'd better not come into my kingdom. And then they have a little war over their kingdoms. Dad, he's on my side. And then what happens? Well, Dad turns around and says, do you want me to come back there? Because Dad thinks that the whole car is his kingdom. I have a kingdom, and I get very upset when my kingdom is challenged. And that's why it's quite difficult to pray this phrase of the prayer, because what am I doing? I'm giving up my kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come in my life. There are areas of my life where you are not in control. I haven't given you the keys to that particular room. I'm trying to handle that part of my life on my own. Lord, may your kingdom come in my life. Lord, may your kingdom come in my marriage. Lord, may your rule extend in my home. Lord, may your rule extend in our church. Lord, may your rule extend in our world. And I'll speak a little bit more about that in a moment. But Lord, may your kingdom come 
in my life. But also, when we pray, your kingdom come, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that one day God's kingdom will finally and fully come. We need both aspects of this phrase, the present and the future. You see, if we think about God's kingdom as only future, then we won't get involved in God's work of extending his kingdom here and now. But if we only think of God's kingdom in terms of the present, then we'll miss out on getting ourselves ready to meet God. We need the future vision too. Lord, may your kingdom come. Lord, we long for the day when you will return and sort everything out. Lord, in the words of the book of Revelation, we long for the day when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Talking about the book of Revelation, the second last line in the book, the last words of the Bible, we read how the Lord Jesus says, Yes, I am coming soon. And the response of the church is, Amen. Yes, Lord, so be it. Come, Lord Jesus. And I wonder if we can really say that. So often we're so busy building our own little kingdom that we don't want God's kingdom to come just yet. Lord, first let me get my career off the ground. Lord, first let me get married. First let us have some children. First let me enjoy my retirement. But we need to remember that Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready to meet him, as we most certainly will. And then thirdly, as followers of Jesus, not only should our primary concern be for God's name and for his kingdom, but our concern should be for his will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, only Jesus knew the huge disparity between God's will on earth and God's will as it is in heaven. One commentator says, In heaven, God's will is obeyed by all, spontaneously, with the deepest joy, and in a perfect manner, without a shadow of unfaithfulness. And I need to pray, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The problem is that we have a will too. Just as we spoke earlier about having a name and having a kingdom, we also have a will. I want my way. I know how things should be run. I could do it better. It's interesting that even Jesus had a will of his own. And even Jesus, who had always submitted his will to the will of his Father, even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I need to submit my will to God's will. And this isn't blind fatalism. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. We're allowed to struggle with God in prayer and ask him for things. And we have accounts in the Bible where prayer seemingly changed God. In one of his books, Philip Yancey says that sometimes he prays like this, Lord, I know how I would like this to turn out, but your will be done. It isn't fatalism. Actually, this is the safest prayer that we can ever possibly pray, 
Lord, may your will be done. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul speaks about God's will, and he refers to God's will as his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We have absolutely nothing to fear in desiring the will of God in our lives. God loves us in perfect wisdom. His will is perfect. As Pastor John Stott puts it, to lose ourselves in the will of God is to find ourselves, to find our true selves. And so today we need a fresh commitment to learning God's will through studying his word, through our online services, perhaps in our Bible study groups, in our own devotions each day, getting to know God's will in his word and then doing God's will. Lord, may your will be done in my life. Lord, may your will be done in our world. In one of his books, John Ortberg summarizes this phrase of the prayer in this way. He says that when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are actually praying, make up there, come down here. That's a good paraphrase, isn't it? Make up there, come down here. John Ortberg goes on to say this. He says, sometimes people pray a version of the Star Trek prayer, beam me up. Many people think our job is to get my afterlife destination taken care of, then tread water till we all get ejected and God comes back and tortures the place. But Jesus never told anybody, neither his disciples nor us, to pray, get me out of here so I can go up there. His prayer was, make up there, come down here. Make things down here run the way they do up there. Jesus told us to pray, bring heaven down here. And this is where the exciting part comes in, because we're able to be involved in this. We have this incredible privilege and responsibility. You see, whenever we feed the hungry, a little bit of God's kingdom comes on earth. Whenever we phone someone who may be lonely and have few friends or family, a little bit of God's kingdom comes on earth. Whenever we knit beanies for the babies at Mowbray Maternity Hospital, a little bit of God's kingdom comes on earth. Whenever we help with a building project for a weaker church, whenever we go and visit someone in hospital, whenever we babysit for a single mom, whenever we take a meal for someone who is sick, whenever we teach a Sunday school class, whenever we take some disadvantaged kids on a camp, whenever we do these things, a little bit of God's kingdom comes on earth. What a privilege. Lord, make up there, come down here. I can think of no more exciting work to be involved in than that. All the other things this world has to offer, making money, gaining power, looking good, getting a name, all of that crumbles into dust, slips through one's fingers like dirt in comparison to being involved where God is, bringing heaven to earth. Again, I think it's important to keep the present of God's kingdom and the future of God's kingdom together in our minds and lives here. I'm not suggesting that if every Christian feed the hungry and clothe the naked and house the homeless, then the world will get better and better and better and God's kingdom will come on earth. 
No, this world is fallen and broken, and it will need an act of God to change it. Thankfully, it's not all up to us to bring God's kingdom on earth. Jesus will come back and restore everything to what it should be. But it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 15, when the Apostle Paul says that one day the end will come, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, he doesn't then say, so relax and sit back and wait for Christ to return. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Or as J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, nothing you do for him is ever lost or wasted. You and I have opportunities each day to bring a foretaste of God's kingdom on earth. In one of his books, John Ortberg tells a wonderful story about the power of prayer, which I'd like to read to you as we close. He writes this. One of my favorite adventures in prayer involves Doug Coe, who has a ministry in Washington, D.C. Doug became acquainted with Bob, an insurance salesman. Bob became a Christian and began to meet with Doug to learn about his new faith. One day Bob came in all excited about a statement in the Bible where Jesus says, Ask whatever you will in my name and you shall receive it. Is that really true? Bob demanded. Doug explained, Well, it's not a blank check. You have to take it in the context of the teachings of the whole of Scripture on prayer. But yes, it really is true. Jesus really does answer prayer. Great, Bob said. Then i got to start to pray for something. I think I'll pray for Africa. That's kind of a broad target. Why don't you narrow it down to one country, Doug advised. All right, I'll pray for Kenya. Do you know anyone in Kenya, Doug asked. No. Ever been to Kenya? No. Bob just wanted to pray for Kenya. So Doug made an unusual arrangement. He challenged Bob to pray every day for six months for Kenya. If Bob would do that and nothing extraordinary happened, Doug would pay him $500. But if something remarkable did happen, Bob would pay Doug $500. And if Bob did not pray every day, the whole deal was off. It was a pretty unusual prayer program, but then Doug is a creative guy. Bob began to pray, and for a long while nothing happened. Then one night he was invited to a dinner in Washington. The people around the table explained what they did for a living. One woman said that she helped to run an orphanage in Kenya, the largest of its kind. Bob saw $500 suddenly sprout wings and begin to fly away, but he couldn't keep quiet. Bob roared to life. He'd not said much up to this point, and now he pounded her relentlessly with question after question. You're obviously very interested in my country, the woman said to Bob, overwhelmed by his sudden barrage of questions. You been to Kenya before? No. You know someone in Kenya? No. Then how do you happen to be so curious? Well, someone is kind of paying me $500 to pray. She asked Bob if he would like to come to visit Kenya and tour the orphanage. Bob was so eager to go, he would have left that very night if he could. 
When Bob arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty and the lack of basic health care. Upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get this place out of his mind. He began to write to large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need he had seen. He reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. Why not send them to this place in Kenya, he asked. And some of them did. This orphanage received more than a million dollars worth of medical supplies. The woman called Bob up and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters you wrote. We would like to fly you back over and have a big party. Will you come? So Bob flew back to Kenya. While he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country, and he offered to take Bob on a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. In the course of the tour, they saw a prison. Bob asked about a group of prisoners there. They're political prisoners, he was told. That's a bad idea, Bob said brightly. You should let them out. Bob finished the tour and flew back home. Sometime later, Bob received a phone call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What did you say? I told him he should let them out. The State Department official explained that the department had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners to no avail. Normal diplomatic channels and political manoeuvrings had led to a dead end. But now the prisoners had been released, and the State Department was told it had been largely because of Bob. So the government was calling to say thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, who was not politically connected at all, boarded a plane once more and flew back to Kenya, where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom for the leader of the nation as he selected his government. All of this happened because one man prayed. Imagine what would happen and could happen if you and I consistently prayed, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I said a moment ago, Jesus expects us to pray these words every day. And so as we go out into this week, each day this week, let's ask ourselves, really ask ourselves, which do we honestly desire, our name or God's name, our kingdom or God's kingdom, our will or God's will? Let's start each day by praying these words and maybe even pause during the day, a couple of times during the day and just whisper these words to ourselves. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you.